right when I'm about to get started. This is Nate and Laura, everybody. Here's a quote. We can read the Bible every day and still have our hearts firmly against the ways of the kingdom of God. We can read the Bible every day and still have our hearts firmly against the ways of the kingdom of God until we read scripture through the lens of the crucified Christ, our our exegesis, which is our interpretation, becomes subject to political preference and a tool to protect a status quo that benefits us. I'm a pastor, and as a pastor, I talk to a lot of people. I talk to a lot of people at this church. I talk to a lot of people outside of this church, people who consider themselves Christians, people who don't consider themselves Christians. I talk to uh, people on social media, which I'm not even sure are people at all, but I talk to them anyway. (laughs) And what's interesting to me, and I'm going to throw myself in the mix because it's probably true for me too, what's the most interesting is the fact that I think most of us have created God in our own image. Created a God in our own image. In fact, there's an author named Anne Lamott. How many people have heard of Anne Lamott before? A few of us. Anne Lamott says, you know you've created God in your own image when God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> and that's kind of true. And so when we create this God in our own image, what we end up doing is we end up going to our scriptures because our scriptures are the holy place. They're the inspired place. They're the place where uh, we have God-breathed words, right? That God-breathed library. And we go there and what we do is we go and we cite passages in our scriptures that, that, that back up our points, right? That get it to the place where we are best served by the God that is made in our image. Are we following? Right, we follow? That's what we do. And so we... uh, take scripture as a flat reading on a page. We take words literally, and we use those words to manipulate in such a way where the God that we want is the God that we get. Now, we're in our racism series. And in this racism series, we're in the last week of it, we've talked about a ton. But the one thing that has surprised me, and the one thing that will continue to surprise me, I think, is that when I read scripture, and I think about what racism looks like in an equitable world and what that looks like, our Bible, full stop, if we're just going to read it literally, full stop, promotes racism. It does. Our Bible, if we're going to read it full stop, promotes slavery. Our Bible, if we're going to read it literally, promotes marginalization of women. If we're going to read the Bible literally, then it promotes uh, marginalization of LGBTQ community, if we're going to read it literally. If we're going to read the Bible literally, uh, the Bible promotes all types of victimization. And if we're going to read it literally, then the Bible oppresses women probably more than anybody else. That's if we're going to read our Bible literally. I've been saying during this series, the Bible is so important It's so important. We take it so seriously that we cannot take it literally. We take it so seriously that we cannot take it literally. And so when we're reading our scripture, in order to get away from from worshiping our own God and a God made in our own image, and to get back to a place where we worship Jesus, I think we have to take a look at scripture differently. And here's what I want to start with. I want to start with talking about reading scripture in context. Let me give you an example of what it looks like to read scripture in context. Uh, I've used this before, uh, this example before. If you remember it, good on you. Um, but here's what I'm going to tell you. Uh, when I was 31, I got punched in the face. When I was 31, I got punched in the face. Now, what do you all think of me? Man, he deserved it. He doesn't look like he'd be punched in the face. My pastor got punched in the face. I can't believe it. When I was 31, I got punched in the face. And so now we can start to make some assumptions about who I am. We're starting to create meaning of the fact that I was punched in the face at the age of 31. Let me just say it. At 31, I got punched in the face. When I was 31, I got punched in the face, and my daughter was just born. She was five minutes old. I picked my daughter up, and she was crying. It was the best moment of my life. And I reached down to kiss my daughter, and she reached up, punched me in the chin. 
she punched me in the face. Context means everything. Context means everything. And so when we talk about racism in our Bible and racism in Scripture, I think what we need to do is create a hermeneutic or a tool by which we can read Scripture in ways that show us the wonderful and amazing grace of Jesus Christ while dealing with some of these hard parts, some of the parts that do talk about oppression, that do talk about marginalization, that do talk about victimization. And that's what I want for us today. So in order for us to do that, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to tell some Bible stories that dispel myths of racism. Are you okay with that? <laughs> Yo, first service was like, no. I was like, come on, first service. Um, I'm going to do that, and then what I want to do is I'm going to give us this tool that we're going to use to look at Scripture through a different lens, or through a context which I think brings peace, and I think brings equity, and I think brings love and grace in ways uh, that are abounding, and that's what we want to do as a church, okay? So you're going to come on a little journey with me. Let's go on a journey through Scripture, and I want to start off by talking about a story called The Curse of Ham. How many people have ever heard of The Curse of Ham before? Good, a few of you. I'm going to read it because it's, it's a really weird story. This is what it says. It says, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard, and when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside, but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be to Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be a slave of Shem. All right, so what's happening here? We got Noah from Noah's Ark fame. We all know her from Noah's Ark. And uh, he goes out and he gets really, really hammered. And then he passes out naked. Typical Saturday night. And what happens is he, he does that, and then his youngest son, Ham, comes in and sees him naked. Okay? Now, in the Near East culture, this is a giant no-no. This is as disrespectful as you can be to a father. Right? You do not do this. All right? And so uh, what happens is Noah says, I'm going to curse you, Ham, and I'm going to curse your son, Canaan. Your son, Canaan, is going to be a slave. That's the story. Okay? Let's put this story into context. In context, we know that this story was written around the time of the Babylonian Empire um, enslaving Israel, okay? And so Israel's enslaved, and what Israel's trying to do is they're trying to say, hey, we should write stuff down where we remember the times where we were actually independent and the times where we were actually powerful and the times where we were actually in charge. Let's write about those times. And so they write this story. And they write this story because this story signifies the time when um, the Canaanites became their enemies. Now, a little more history. When Israel came out of slavery from Egypt, they wandered in the desert, and then they invaded the land of Canaan. They invaded the Canaanites, and they took over, and that's how they became free. Okay, So what we have here is a history lesson. It's a history tale. It's like George Washington you know, chopping down the, the tree and then not lying about it or whatever. I, I forget, anyway. Um, what we have a patriotic tale. What this patriotic tale, tale does is it says, hey, remember when we were on top, but we had an enemy, the Canaanites, but remember the Canaanites weren't as good as, as, good as us, and so we end up uh, taking them over and we end up winning, right? And as we're enslaved right now, let's remember those good times. And remember that there is the possibility for freedom for us later. That's the context by which this passage happens. This is a, a passage that is basically a patriotic tale for a nation in need of hope. Got it? 
We're all following along. If you want more, I can give you way more. I know this is all in nutshells. So what happens? Well, slave traders come along, slaveholders come along, anybody who owns slaves comes along, anybody who wants to own a slave comes along, and they're Christians. And they say, I need to make God in my image, and I have to be able to justify the subhuman treatment of slaves. Well, how can I do that? Well, when I read my scriptures, uh, the Jewish uh, translation for Ham is often uh, black or dark-skinned. And what I see is I see Noah cursing Ham and saying that Ham and his descendants will all be slaves, which means that I can, be, I can do slavery, which means slavery is okay which means slavery against people who are dark-skinned or black is an okay thing because I see it right here in Genesis. This is what the Bible says. Do we see the danger of taking the Bible literally instead of taking the Bible contextually? We're starting to see that danger. And so for hundreds of years, this is a passage used to continue slavery, to continue keeping people in a subhuman condition. In fact, there's one pastor I pointed out, and I pointed this pastor out because he um, actually was a pastor right here in Brooklyn, right down the street in Fort Greene. And in 1861, this is what he said. He said this about um, the abolitionists who were telling people that they couldn't own slaves. He said, when an abolitionist tells me that slaveholding is a sin, in the simplicity of my faith in the Holy Scriptures, I point to him this sacred record and say in all candor, just as the Bible does, that the abolitionist teaching blasphemes the name of God and his doctrine. He points to the passage of Ham and he goes, no, if you want to say that slavery, people, uh, people should be free, just look at God and his doctrine. It says right there, people should be enslaved. When we take scripture literally, we can twist and turn it to do whatever we want with it, and we create a God in our own image. In this case, it happens to be a God who condones and approves of slavery. Now, here's the irony of this. This is a passage used for enslaved people to find hope that they might be free, and then it gets twisted and turned around for a passage for enslaved people not to ever have any hope. Do we see the irony here? Do we see what we've done with this scripture? Should we keep going? Let's talk about the Tower of Babel. Let's talk about it. How many people have heard the Tower of Babel? Shout out to my small group. We were talking about it, and that's why I decided to preach on it. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we were like, but what about the Tower of Babel? And I was like, yeah, what about it? Because the Tower of Babel is this interesting story. It's a story where you have all these, uh, uh, this group of people, they come in, they start with new technology. They, they uh, take some bricks, new technology, big deal. They start building this, this tower that's, you know, most people think it's an affront to God. Yeah, that's what they think. And God says, oh my goodness, we can't have this. Uh, if they do this, there's no telling what they're going to do. Let's go ahead and scatter their language. And, and let's go ahead and scatter these people so that they're, they're not all one. All right? Literal reading, we got a pretty good case that people should be separate but equal. Right? We have a pretty good case here that that's what God intends in Genesis 11. God intends that some people be separate from other people, that languages should be different. And you know what? This passage was part of the reason that the United States in the early to mid-1900s decided that separate but equal was an okay and lawful thing, right? Because of a passage like this one. This passage was used in such a way where people were not allowed to get married to people of other ethnicities because of this passage up until, I want to say like 19... Somebody help me. Like 78 or... What, what? You're, you're, you're a... It's about 19. It was in the late 1960s. And he knows because he's related to the, the loving family. He knows this. It's kind of cool. Talk to them later. Um, in the year 2000, there was a college in South Carolina that used this passage to say that people of different ethnicities should not date. Do we get that? In the year 2000, I think you all were born in the year 2000 or more, right? Right? It was said that they should not use, they should not date people outside of their ethnicity because 
of this passage. This is what happens when we take Scripture literally. What's really going on here? Let's look at the context. What does the context say? Well, we've got to go back to Genesis 10. Go back to Genesis 10. There's a man named Nimrod. Huh? <laughs> Name your next kid Nimrod. It's going to go well. Um, and so Nimrod is a mighty warrior and a mighty hunter. Now, here's a little clue. When you see things like mighty warrior, mighty hunter attached to one person's name, that's generally the name of an empire. So Nimrod is probably the name of an empire. And it's a big empire. And it's a powerful empire. The empire is also, ready for this, a Canaanite empire. And what did we learn from the last story? The Canaanites were the, they were the enemy, right? So it's a Canaanite empire. And they're powerful. And so what we have going is we have this powerful empire coming in, building a tower at the expense of the powerless. At the expense of the powerless. So we have the powerful oppressing the powerless. And so what God does is God says, oh my goodness, the powerful are, are exposing and oppressing the powerless. This can't be. There's no telling what they'll do if they actually build this tower and continue to oppress the powerless. I'm going to scatter them and scatter their language so they can't build the same powerful empire they built before. What we have is a God who is greatly concerned with the injustice of the powerful oppressing the powerless. And what have we done with this? The irony continues. We're going to drip with it pretty soon. What happens? God is angry. God says the powerful are manipulating the powerless. This can't be. We've turned it into a passage where the powerful manipulate the powerless, and it's okay. That is what we've turned it into. Are we dripping with the irony yet? We there? When we, when we read Scripture with a flat reading, we read it literally. We miss out on context. And in that case, we create a God in our own image. We can cite Scripture that does the same. I'll give you another one. How many people... How many people over the past few years, really, have been told that um, we don't mess with our leaders because our leaders were given to us by God? How many people? Raise your hand. I, wanna see. I just want to see. How many people? A few of us. Yeah. Romans 13.1. Let everyone subject to the gov- be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Okay, so this is important. Right? And whenever we see marginalization today's time, um, I think of refugees, I think of DACA, I think of immigrants, I think of that right now. And we see people, and I'm going, you know, I'll say something like, our leadership, our leadership is taking these people away. And somebody will say to me, well, as a Christian, it's our job to submit to authority. So we, we probably just need to let them do what they're going to do. And talk about taking passages out of context. What's, what's Paul talking about here? Paul is talking about straight up war, he's talking about revol- uh, revolution. Okay, so in this context, what we have is a group of people who are being hurt, they're being persecuted, they're being murdered, and they're a new church, and they're like, Paul, we need to take on the Roman Empire. And Paul goes, whoa, slow down. That's a bad idea. You're going to get yourselves killed. The government's here for a reason. God has put them here for a reason, but there is something we can do. All right? And Paul was right, by the way, because in the year 70 AD, they tried to revolt against the Roman Empire, and the entire temple was like, demolished. Okay, so Paul was right. If we just jump back one chapter, to, to uh, chapter um, 12, we see Paul talking exactly what to do with the government. And this is what he says. He says, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If your, en- if your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. Heap coal- if, in doing that, you will heap coals upon their head. What's Paul saying? He's saying civil disobedience is the way. He's like, you want to subvert your government? You know what? Look at how they're oppressing. Look how they're hurting. And then go help the oppressed and the hurt. 
Go give them what they need. You know what that's going to do to your government? It's going to heap coals on your government's head. And so now we've basically uh, made MLK into a legend. And why have we made him to a legend? I think part of the reason is, is because he figured that out. He figured out that the contextually, Paul's calling for civil disobedience to which MLK was, you know, a master of, right? Which is why we, we still think about him to this day and give him a holiday and all the rest. That's what Paul's talking about. It's not for us to sit back and go, well, I see injustice, but you know, God ordained that person, so I'm going to let the injustice happen. No, it goes, no, we don't want to take up arms, but what we do want to do is be civilly disobedient. We want to call out injustice where it is. When we see refugees, when we see immigrants, when we see people being forcibly taken away from our families, there's stuff we can do about that. There's stuff we can do to help those families, and in that process, heap coals on people's heads. Do you see what happens when we start taking Scripture literally and outside of context? Do we see how we can shift it and change it to create a God in our own image, with our own needs, with our own wants? Now, you might be sitting there going, Jonathan, you're a pastor, and you have lots and lots of time to study and research this, and I do. <laughs> But here's what I want to do. I want to give you context. And I want to give you the tools. I want to give you the hermeneutics to where you can read the Bible in a way that is not done literally, but done contextually. I'm going to tell you how. Okay? So if you haven't been listening this thus far, I want you to listen right now. Okay? We're going to talk about the transfiguration. How many people have heard of the transfiguration before? You guys are good today. You guys are good. Transfiguration. It's a wonderful day. In fact, it's a day that's on our Christian calendar. It's been on our Christian calendar for hundreds of years because it's such an important day. It's a day where churches around the world are all talking about the transfiguration. Why? I'm going to read you the story. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus, and they spoke about his departure, which was about to bring fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid. And so as they entered the cloud, a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son who I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at the time what they had seen. The transfiguration story. There it is. There's a lot of wacky stuff going down, right? What do we do with a story like this? Let's talk about Peter. Peter wants to build three, temp or three spots for them. Basically, he wants to like build three ways for them to be worshipped. Why? This is a good thing for Peter because in Peter's religion, in Judaism at the time, everything was based on the law and the prophets. All of it. Okay? All based on the law and the prophets. Who was the law? The law was Moses. Who were the prophets? Well, the greatest of the prophets in, in their minds was Elijah. So you have the law and the prophet right there. Everything your religion is based on is there. It's Moses, it's Elijah. And then there's this guy, Jesus, and he seems to be pretty cool. And so maybe we should build something for him too. Remember, he wasn't the Lord yet. He, wasn't, he didn't die. He wasn't resurrected yet. So, there he's, so Peter's doing what we, we would all do. He's like, yeah, we, let's build like an altar for all three of these guys because they impact religion in, in amazing ways. And then what happens is cloud comes. And all of a sudden you get this voice, and the voice goes, this is my son, listen to him. And Moses leaves, and Elijah leaves, the law leaves, the prophet leaves. All that's left is Jesus. 
what are we seeing? I think the, uh, the pastor Brian Zond says it best. He says the transfiguration shows us that the Bible is not a flat text where every passage carries the same weight. There is a new word of God that the law and the prophets no longer have final say. It is Jesus that has final say. Everything must be looked at through the lens and context of Jesus Christ. That is what the transfiguration is telling us. Everything needs to be looked at through the, law, through the context of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. So Jesus will even say this, right? He'll say the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your uh, neighbor as yourself. For on this, all the law and the prophet stands, right? All the laws and the prophets stand. Or he's doing his Sermon on the Mount, and people said, uh, you're contradicting the laws and the prophets. And he goes, no, I'm not. I'm here to fulfill the law and the prophets. It is now my word. When we read Scripture, we cannot read Scripture without reading it through the lens of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the lens through which we see Scripture made whole. So here's the deal. I'm uh, talking to somebody about a year ago. And as I'm talking to this person a year ago, I see, yeah, I'm like, Jesus was a pacifist, anti-violence. You know, he talked about turning the other cheek. He talked about loving your enemy. And then my friend says to me, but the whole Bible, if the whole Bible's inspired, well, then Moses, you know, also talks about an eye for an eye. And if the Bible's inspired, well, look at all the violence in the war of the Old Testament, to which what I'm saying is in this hermeneutic, in this tool, you cannot cite Moses to silence Jesus. Jesus has the final word. That's it. So every time we read about uh, the curse of Ham and the curse of Ham happens and people are made slaves, well, we, we can't say, well, slavery must be okay because of the curse of Ham. No, we look at Jesus, right? We can't use the curse of Ham to silence the teachings of Jesus. What about the Tower of Babel with the powerful and the powerless? What does that mean? We can't, we can't talk about that passage without seeing it through the lens of Jesus Christ. Everything that we read, we look at through the lens of Jesus Christ. And what do we find in the lens of Jesus Christ? Racism, we've talked about this every week. Jesus, was, Jesus didn't treat people equally, he treated them equitably. That means he was treating people who had less, who are the ethnic minorities, the people who were being hurt, he treated them better. That's where we see Jesus. If we're talking about racism, then we're talking about it in a way where we're lifting up people who have continually been brought down. What about um, the powerful and the powerless? Well, you know, or, you know flat reading, it looks like, uh, flat reading, it looks like um, uh, we, want, we want to keep people separate. We want to keep ethnicity separate. Well, if I look at Jesus, what does Jesus say? Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman who's a different ethnicity. Jesus is going, constantly going to people who are different, which you weren't supposed to do at that time, and he's inviting them in. He's inviting to, to unity, and that sort of ends up in, in the book of Acts where there's the Pentecost, and all these different languages are being spoken, but they're all together, and everybody goes, this is amazing. We are unified. We understand one another. Right? That's through the lens of Jesus. When we talk about the government, well, the government says, you know, we should obey the government. Well, what was Jesus doing? Let's look at it through the lens of Jesus. Jesus subverted the government every chance he got. Let's be honest. Every time we read about the teachers of the law, that's government officials. We're subverting the government. when he did. So he's doing it in a way that's civilly disobedient to bring about equity for those who have less. It's pretty incredible that Jesus does that every single time. Anytime we come into a place where we see people oppressed, marginalized, hurt in our scriptures, the hermeneutic that we now have, the tool we now have is, how do I see this through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And if it doesn't match up with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, doesn't match up with the life of Christ, then there's something bigger. 
And there's a context we need to dig deeper into. And it doesn't quite make sense the way we thought it did. This is good news. This is good news because we are in this racism series. And it's good news in this racism series. I'm going to tell you why. Because we have this really controversial idea of who Jesus is, right? This really controversial, like, wow, you're, you're telling me that it's Jesus and G Jesus is first and foremost? And I would say absolutely 100%. First and foremost, the reason we are Christians, the reason we are even here today, the reason we even care about equity is because of Jesus. It's because of the death and resurrection. It's because of the never-ending love. It's because of grace upon grace upon grace that we even get to sit here and want to create an equitable society. It's because of Jesus. I've asked us to do a lot. I've asked us to be angry for people who have experienced racism. I think we should still do that. I've asked us to to become minorities if we're not minorities, to, to put ourselves in positions where, where we're marginalized. I've asked us to read people that we might not want to read, talk to people we might not want to talk to. I've asked us to do those things. I've asked us to show up. When there are people in need, let's show up for them. And this is the last thing I'm going to say. When we read our scriptures, I'm going to ask you not to create God in your own image. I'm going to hold myself to not creating God in my own image. What I'm going to hold myself to, what I'm asking you to hold yourself to, is the bigger picture. The death and the resurrected Christ brings about a completely different way of living. And yeah, it might look contradictory in our Bible, but when we have the hermeneutic of Jesus Christ, we know exactly where God stands because Jesus is God incarnate. That's a good thing. So I want to go ahead and pray. And I want to pray what I think is probably my favorite, my favorite prayer or my favorite, my favorite um. Message of Jesus, I like this one the best. And I want to pray it with um, the marginalized, the oppressed, the hurt, the victimized in mind. I want to pray it with people of color in mind who have been hurt and marginalized. I want to pray it with women in mind who have been hurt and marginalized. The LGBTQ community who has been hurt and marginalized. I want to pray it in mind with anybody who has been a, a victim of domestic violence. I want to pray with them in mind. And let's see what Jesus is really up to. You are blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You are blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you'll find yourselves cared for. And you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you get to show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution, the persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. And not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you or discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they're uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all of heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. For my prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Church, let's get into some trouble. <laughs> Amen.